Good morning. <clears throat> He's risen. All right, kids, off you go. They know who they are, so the rest of you have to say. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration Church. So glad that you're with us today. If you're visiting, welcome. Um, we uh, we're going to take a look at a chapter in the Bible this morning that my guess is most of you have never heard preached before. And uh, if you're wondering, uh, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 9, that wonderful Easter text. Uh, And if you're wondering why on earth would you choose, Nathan, to preach Judges chapter 9, well, my answer is pretty simple as to why I chose it. It's the next chapter. Uh, So we as a church have been walking through the book of Judges for the past couple months, and Judges chapter 9 is the next verse, the next passage. So we're just going to go right there. And uh, as you'll see... It's not exactly the most Eastery kind of sermon, Eastery kind of passage, but I hope that what you'll see, if you're, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, I hope what you'll find is that we as Christians are not afraid of all parts of the Bible, especially passages like this one that are a little difficult and dark in its own way. And hopefully also one of the things that you'll find is that all passages in the Bible point to Jesus. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that before, but like that's what the Bible's about. It's not ultimately about me or you. It's about Jesus. Every passage, uh, my kid's Bible has this little uh, passage that says, every passage whispers his name. So um, some passages shout his name. Uh, but this passage points to Jesus. So we're going to take a look at Judges chapter 9 uh, this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would show us Christ. And you show us our need for him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so in order to get our minds kind of bended to what this passage here is about, uh, let me call your attention to our cultural moment. And in particular, the proliferation of the abuse of power in our cultural moment. It's everywhere, right? This abuse of power. We find it everywhere. You can't watch the nightly news. Uh, You can't read things on social media without running into somebody abusing power in some way, shape, or form. And you'll also find that that abuse of power has touched virtually every category of profession. So everything from teachers and politicians to athletes to Hollywood movie stars to policemen and, yes, even pastors. And this abuse of power also comes in all sorts of forms, doesn't it? We've seen sexual abuse, and uh, we've seen economic abuse. We've seen racism and and misogynistic kinds of things happening. Uh, And so in this abuse of power, we learn something about the character of humanity when power is given to him. Abraham Lincoln said so well, he said that if you uh, want to really test a man's character, give him power. You'll see what he's really like. We're going to see that this morning. And maybe you're asking the question, well, what does the Bible have to say about this abuse of power? What does it have to say? And what is its answer? Well, that's what we're going to see. Those are the questions that we'll answer here from Judges chapter 9. The book of Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. It comes after books maybe you're familiar with, books like Genesis and Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy comes after those books. It becomes before books like Isaiah and Psalms and these kinds of books. Uh, in other words, the book of Judges is in what we call, Christians call the Old Testament. That doesn't mean because it's in the Old Testament that we think it's not useful anymore. It just means that it's part of the Old Covenant, which was an agreement that God had with the Israelite people. 
And so the Israelite people, God gave them his land. He gave them uh, a land. He gave them his law and he gave them his presence. And the people were to then respond to that love, to that care by trusting God and obeying him. But what we've been finding through the book of Judges is they're not doing that. They're not responding in love and obedience. In fact, we see them doing all kinds of terrible things. So Israel, we're seeing, is like an unfaithful spouse who the, uh, the, the husband, let's say, loves the spouse and the spouse just runs away and kind of cheats on them. And so this book testifies to what happens to a people when that happens. When a people begin to reject God as king and begin to go their own way. As a matter of fact, if you were to look in the back of the book of Judges, the very last sentence, you get the whole point of the book. And here's what it says. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. How's that for an ending of a book? Sort of a dark ending, right? Which, that's the point of the whole book, to sort of show you this is not the way to go. In other words, Judges is uh, meant to be a kind of R-rated cautionary tale. Warning us to not try and unseat God and go our own way. And so that's why we've entitled this series through the book of Judges, The Supremacy of of Self. What happens to a society when it rejects God and does what is right in its own eyes. And we've been watching week after week. The cycle just gets worse and worse and worse. And so here's how I'm going to go about uh, sort of going through Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9 has 57 verses. All right. And it's telling one story with one point. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just walk us through that text, kind of commenting as I go. And at the end of it, I'll make some conclusions and then applications for us. But here's the big idea for this chapter in Judges. The big idea here is, is that evil always loses. Evil always loses, even if it appears to win. That's what we see. Evil always loses, even if it appears to win. Now, before we get into chapter 9, we need to kind of set the context here with those final few verses of of chapter 8, verse 33 to 35. And for those of us that have been walking through this, we've seen this pattern before. What we've seen just coming before verse chapter 9 is we find that Israel is in trouble. They call out to God. The Midianites are coming in, causing all kinds of problems. Uh, They call out to God. God raises up a judge by the name of Gideon. Gideon comes in and God mercifully delivers uh, them from those Midianites uh, through Gideon. We note, though, uh, at the end of chapter 8, we get this context in verse 33, 833. And note the word again when I read it. The people of Israel, after Gideon had died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. Now, Baal and Baal bereath, uh, are false gods that were being worshipped around the place where Israel was coming into. And they began to adopt those false gods. And so that's, uh, if that's not bad enough, right, God's mercifully delivered them through Gideon, even though they don't deserve it. And so they go right in, and right after Gideon dies, they just begin to worshipping false, false gods. And then look what happens in verse 34 and 35 of chapter 8. This is right before 9. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So not only are they worshiping the gods that were around them as they were told not to do, they also forsook the Lord that had been so good to them. And they forsook the Lord, and then they also forsook the family of Gideon who had also been so good to them. 
Now, to be clear, when it says there that they did not remember the Lord, their God, that does not mean that they didn't remember about the Lord, their God. They knew all about him. They knew about what he had done. But what it's meant there is that they didn't know the Lord uh, in the same way that a, that a wife wouldn't know her husband. Which is to say they neglected God and they forgot about him and went on their own way. You can see that word hoard there. And that's a good word to explain what Israel's doing. Like I mentioned before, they had kind of married the Lord. And as soon as they moved into the land that God had given them, they left him for other lovers. And then they began to kind of whore themselves out to these other people. And as soon as God would do something good to them, they would just ask for, uh, they would then uh, sort of uh, go be thankful for that work and then go about their own way. And then they'd get in trouble again and they'd ask for God. And God would mercifully kept delivering them. But each time things would just get worse and worse and worse and worse, as you'll see. So enter, on the context of that, Abimelech. That's our guy for today. Chapter 8, verse 30, we see that Gideon, this is Abimelech's dad, the guy that came just before this, uh, we see that Gideon had many wives. All right, obviously he had many wives. He's got 70 sons. Could you imagine? How many daughters does the guy have? Who knows, right? Well, and not only does he have uh, all of these wives, apparently he also has a concubine. So a concubine would have been uh, just a way for sort of husbands to kind of use other women to have more children. And uh, this is, uh, was the way that I think Gideon was trying to extrapolate his power after he was gone. Just trying to have more and more children to extrapolate his power. Because, listen, this is important to note, as we've said before, Gideon was used of God, most certainly, But like the Israelites, at the back end of his life, he forgot about the Lord and he abused his power. Not a good example. Chapter 8. Go back and listen to it two weeks ago when I preached chapter 8. That's the model. That's what the text is telling us. Gideon did not finish well. So this story that comes in chapter 9 is meant to teach us to reveal the effects of those poor decisions of Gideon. It is meant to show you that the abuse of power and the practice of polygamy are what follows when you neglect the Lord and his ways. So when you do polygamous sort of things and you abuse power, the story that you're about to hear is what happens when you do that instead of following the Lord in his ways. That brings us to chapter 9, verse 1. Abimelech remembers Gideon's son. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So Abimelech means uh, my God is king or my father is king. So it kind of tells you what Gideon was thinking uh, when he named his son. But this guy, he basically makes a power play with one of his family members. In particular, he makes a power play with his mom. Uh, So he gets his mom to advocate for him to kind of be the president of the local principality of Shechem there. He gets his mom to advocate for him. And Abimelech's logic is pretty simple. He says, listen, go tell them, would you rather have 70 guys rule over you? Or would you rather just have one guy rule over you? And by the way, listen, I'm one of you. So the leaders are, let's see how they're going to be inclined to this argument. Take a look at verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. 
And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at, at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together in all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. All right, let's stop and kind of put all this together, shall we? All right, so you got a guy in uh, Abimelech that is the son of a concubine that gets his mom to make a power play on his behalf. They buy into it, those leaders do. They respond by giving him 70 pieces of silver from the collection plate of a false church, of a false god. He then takes those 70 pieces of silver and goes out and hires a bunch of deadbeats. All right? In the back alley somewhere, goes hires a bunch of dudes, brings them in, and they then kill his brothers, all of his brothers. By the way, these are Israelites. These are supposed to be God's people, the people that God had been so good to. And if you're saying about this point, this is messed up, you're exactly right. You should be feeling that way. That's what the author wants you to think. This is messed up. But listen, it gets worse. Take a look at chapter 9, 7 to 15. Remember Jotham, he was that youngest son that got away. All right. Jotham, he goes up to a nearby mount, uh, which is really kind of like a large hill. If you were to go see a picture of it today, you'd see it comes right up on Shechem. So it sits right there, sort of like a large hill. And he goes up, Jotham goes up to that hill, and sort of like Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this parable to the people of Shechem. All right, he escaped. He knows his brother Abimelech is a wicked dude, and he gives this parable about trees looking for leaders. Verses 8 and 9, the trees uh, ask an olive tree to rule over them. Because they're thinking, right, olive key, good tree, gives a lot of good stuff. We'll get, the, we'll get the olive tree to be our guide, to rule over us, the rest of the trees. But the olive tree is like, it says essentially in verse 9, like, so, I'm good, man, I got olives. I don't need to rule over all the rest of you trees. And so then the trees say, well, listen, let's go get a fig tree to rule over us. And the fig's like, man, I got tons of sweetness, I'm good. I don't want to rule over you dudes. And then in verse uh, 12, they say, well, let's get a vine to rule over us. And the vine says there in verse 13, hey, listen, I'm good. I kind of give wine. People are really happy with the stuff I produce. I'm good. I don't need to rule over you guys. So then in verse 14, the trees then uh, resort to looking to a bramble tree to rule over them. Now, a bramble tree is nothing more than a thorn bush. Now, an Israelite would have known when they hear thorns, Genesis chapter 3 comes immediately into their minds. Thorns are a result of the fall. And so they're resorting to a thorn, a sort of cursed tree that produces nothing and does nothing to lead them. Uh, So now, that's the bramble tree. They're going to get them to rule over them. Now listen to verse 15. This is an important verse. It kind of lays out the point of the whole chapter of chapter 9. The bramble then said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the seeds of Lebanon. So Jotham then gives the explanation of this parable in verses 16 to 20. And in basically verses 16 to 19, Jotham says, like, listen, if you guys chose Abimelech to be your leader in good faith and in honor, good for you. Rejoice. Have a great time. But then we get this in verse 20. Jotham says to them, but if not, 
Like, in other words, if you didn't uh, raise him up in an honorable way, let if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. In other words, Jotham said, if all this came about in a way that is dishonorable and both the folks in Shechem and both Beth Milo and Abimelech, if that's the way this happened, if you guys did all that in a dishonorable way, listen, you're all going down. That's what it's saying. That sets up everything that comes after it. So guys, verse 15 and 20 are sort of like one end of a book end of this chapter. And verse 56 and 57 are the other book end of the chapter. And the story that we're about to read comes in between that. And they're meant to frame everything that we learn in this passage. So they're meant to sort of tell us uh, what's about to come. So take a look down there. You get in verse 22. You get, we see how long uh, uh, Abimelech is ruling. And then you get this strange verse in verse 23. I've had numerous members of our church ask me about it this week. I'm going to explain it in just a moment. All right, it says there, let me, I'm going to read it, verse 23, 24. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Right there is when you go, wait, what? Right, oh, hang on. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come. And their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So in other words, all that just said is justice is now being administered. God is bringing about justice to come to these evil folks. But what's going on with a whole God sending an evil spirit? What's that about? Great question. Important question. Uh, you ask that question because I think most of you have all heard and correctly understand that God cannot do evil. Right? James chapter 1 verse 13 in the Bible says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. 1 John 1 5, another Work in the Bible says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And of course, we know the nature of God is love, right? Is love. And so we also know that he defines the good. That's what we learn in Genesis chapter one, when he says this is good and this is good and this is good and this is very good. And so what's going on here in this passage? If God can't do evil, if he's holy, what's going on here? Well, notice in the verse of verse 23, notice God does not author the evil. But instead, he sends the evil spirit. The evil spirit did not come from him. He sent what was already there doing what it was already doing. In other words, the Lord didn't create the evil. He sent the evil spirit. He used the evil spirit that was already evil doing evil. He used it. Christians, friends, have always believed that God is sovereign. Which is to say, we don't believe in the yin and the yang. Sort of good and evil kind of equal battling against itself. We, as, as Christians, have always believed that God is sovereign. He is over all things and he can use all things to accomplish his good purposes, including evil spirits. Which is most evident, by the way, in the cross of Christ. Where evil is being, God is using evil to accomplish his great purpose. And so that's what God's doing here. Like Jotham's parable foretold, God is going to punish the evil of everyone involved here and so let's now watch how this plays out all right put your seatbelt on here comes the r-rated portion i thought it was bad already well it gets worse 
So God sends the evil spirit to create division between everyone involved. That's verses 22 to 24. Verse 25, we see the leaders of Shechem set up an evil version of Robin Hood. All right. They're sitting outside the town, robbing folks as they come in. All right. This is what's going on. You should be going. And this is messed up. Yes, it is. And it's going to get even worse. All right. They sit outside the city of Shechem in the mountains. They're ambushing folks as they come in. They rob them. And then in verse 26 to 29, a new character enters the story. Another bad leader. Verse 26 to 29, this guy named Gaul, the son of Ebed, moves into Shechem with all of his family. And they head out uh, during the grape harvest season and they gather some grapes. And as a result of this, they're out gathering the grapes. They come back in. What do you do when you gather grapes? You make some wine. What do you do when you get a bunch of wine in harvest season? You have a big old party, right? Well, that's what they do. They have a festival. Big party. So everybody's drinking. Everybody's eating. I'm sure a lot of people are drinking a little too much. And so the party makes its way into a temple to a false god. You can see that in verse 27. They make this, the party makes its way into a temple of a false god in verse 27. Everybody's drinking and eating. And no doubt Gaul has had a little too much to drink because his ire begins to raise he begins to get a lot of confidence, Gaul does. Gaul's heard about this new king, Abimelech, that's over Shechem. And look what he says there in verse 29. This is Gaul speaking in verse 29. After all of this festival, he says, Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So in other words, he says, if you good folks of Shechem would let me have the power of this town, I'd say to Abimelech, bring it on. I'm going to take you down, bro. You know, like he's feeling really tough, right, at this time. Well, somebody in the room, there's a guy by the name in the room who's named Zebul. If he's not in the room, he at least knows somebody that is. Because Zebul, he's with Abimelech, and he hears what Gaul has just said. And so in verse 30, Abimelech's general, Zebul, He's, he's again in there. He sends out some folks to Abimelech to let them know what Gaul just said. All right. And so Zebul and Abimelech, they kind of make a plan about taking Gaul down because he's causing division in the city of this place he's now been ruler over. And so here's Abimelech's plan to take down Gaul and all of this division that's now happening. Their plan is to head up into the mountains like those ambushers before in the middle of the night and then at the first break of dawn, they're going to come down those mountains and take out Gaul and his boys. There's their plan. So off Abimelech and his boys go, all right, up into the mountains, all right, while Gaul and his boys are down there having their festival, having a big old time, doing who knows what. All right, verse 35, my guess is Gaul hasn't slept much that night. Maybe he's slightly hungover. He comes out to the gate of the city, and Abimelech and his boys rise up. Down, come sweeping down the mountain. And in verse 36, guess who's standing right next to Gaul? As Gaul is standing there at the city gate, sort of, you know, maybe stretching. It was a long night. Standing right next to Gaul is Zebul. Now, remember, Gaul doesn't know Zebul's with Abimelech. So he's standing there. Gaul's standing there, maybe stretching. And Zebul is waiting for this attack to come from the mountains. He's looking for it, and he sees it. And he says in verse 36, Zebul says to Gaul, Hey, now, Zebul, listen, here come some folks. They're coming down after you. All right? And Gaul says, no, 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 no. It's just the shadow of the mountains. Those aren't men. Don't worry about it. And Zebul says back to him, dude, those are folks. Those are people. They're coming after you. 
And then in verse 37, Gaul's like, whoa, those are people. I need to get ready to fight, right? Well, look at verse 38. This is so good. This is, this is a great moment. If you're making a movie, you can't beat these lines right here. Verse 38, so the moment I'm sure that Zebul's just waiting to deliver this word. So Zebul has sort of been collusing, hiding as a Bimelech's guy inside the camp of Gaul. And so he's ready for this fight to come. It's coming down. Gaul is right on the heels of recognizing this is men. They're coming to get me. And in verse 38, Zebul then whispers in his ear, where's your mouth now, you who said who is a Bimelech? In other words, Gaul, in other words Zebul just said, where you at now, tough guy? Let's go. Let's see what you got. You said you were all tough over there, man. You're talking about how you're going to take down Abimelech. Well, let's see you do it now. Well, Gaul and the leaders of Shechem go out to meet Abimelech and his boys. And in verse 40, we find it doesn't go well for Gaul. We see Abimelech chases down Gaul and he sends he and his family away. And that's just the beginning. On the next day, verse 42 the people of Shechem are moving on with their life out in the field. Abimelech sort of rules, maybe returned. Verse 43, Abimelech gathers his army back up, strangely, and listen to what he does. Verse 44. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and sowed it with salt. You can see why now. This is not exactly the most eastery kind of sermon. Or is it? As we will see. But as bad as that is, folks, Abimelech's not done. In verses 47 to 49... Abimelech is so ticked off at these people for being traitors towards Gaul, he catches wind that the leaders have gotten away, that those other folks he killed, the leaders have gotten away and they've holed themselves up in a tower to protect themselves. Now remember, Jotham said there was a, there was a prophecy on these guys that they're going to get burned, right? So those leaders have now holed themselves up inside of a tower and Abimelech and his boys, they gather a bunch of, what's the word there? Bramble. And they go and set the tower on fire. And we learn in verse 49, they killed all those leaders, a thousand men and women. And if all of that is not enough, Abimelech, so drunk on power and revenge, he goes to a neighboring town called Thebes. Same thing happens there. They hold themselves up in a tower, and Abimelech and the guys set it on fire. But look at this. Justice is about to get served. Verse 52. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Now remember, he's already seen this strategy works. He's going to do it again. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. I think that's a pretty good result. Verse 54 Then he called quickly to the young man. Listen to this. This is how sick this guy Abimelech is. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me. Why, Abimelech? Well, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. Killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone everyone departed 
to his home. And then we get the conclusion of this story. This is the point that God would have us to take away. This is, remember that other book in it. gives us the explanation of everything. Verse 56. Thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Folks, evil loses every single time. Evil loses every single time, even if it looks like it's winning for a short period of time. That's the point of this chapter. Evil never gets the last word. It always gets its punishment in the end. It may appear to win for a short time, but it always loses, even if it might be looking like it's winning for a short time. Take a look back at verse 22. Abimelech, we see, is ruling for three years. This wicked leader reading, leading for three years. His evil plan to collude with the leaders of Shechem and profit from the money given to false gods doesn't appear to be dealt with by God. Doesn't appear to be dealt with. If we were reading the Washington Post back in those days, living then, about this guy, we'd be wondering one thing and wishing for another. We'd wonder why, if God was good and he is sovereign, why is this evil guy being allowed to win all the time? That's what we'd wonder. And then we would wish that Abimelech and those leaders that held him up, those wicked leaders that held him up, we would be wishing that he would receive, that they would receive punishment for their wrongs. But day after day, if we lived in that time, day after day would go by for up to three years and nothing would evidently be happening, tempting us to doubt the goodness of God. But the reality is, God did have the final word. And he was in control. And Abimelech and the evil uh, leaders were dealt with, just as Jotham prophesied. Folks, evil never wins. Evil never wins. It always loses. It always gets punishment, even when it looks like it's being allowed to win. Let me show you some other verses in the Bible that, that support this idea of evil always losing and getting punished in keeping with its deeds. Psalm 146, verse 9 says, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. Psalm 147, verse 6 says, The Lord lifts up the humble, but He casts the wicked to the ground. Isaiah 13, 11 says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Here's a really clear one. Proverbs 11.21 Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished. Isaiah 3.11 Woe to the wicked. It will be ill with them for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. And then finally, this would be a good one that would speak to Abimelech. Psalm 7.16 His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. First application point, folks. Our desire for justice to be served to the wicked comes from the God of the Bible. Your desire for justice to be served to wicked people, wicked leaders, that fits inside the framework of the God of the Bible. God has made all of us in His image. As human beings, we have built within us, within our DNA, this notion of morality because the God that made us is holy. 
He keeps that morality perfectly. He, and he expects us to do the same. And so no matter how, how hard we try to get away from that morality in our 21st century age, no matter how hard we try to relativize truth and morality, we can't get away from it. No matter how hard we try to say, you know, whatever's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, no matter how many times we try to say that, we see it doesn't work. It never actually works. It's not consistent. Why? Because we're moral agents. We can't get away from saying this is right or this is wrong or this is good and this is bad. We have just built within us this notion of justice to come to evil. No matter how hard we try and find this kind of relativism, this relativistic age to make sense of the world, it doesn't work. A a truly consistent relativism can never materialize because we are moral agents made by God. We will always make claims of right and wrong and good and bad. And so morality is built into us again because we were made by a holy God. And so, friend, your desires for justice to be served to evil are right. They're right. You should want that. You were made to sense that, to feel that. It fits inside of a biblical worldview long before it would ever fit inside of an inconsistent, relativistic worldview. The God of the Bible, friends, calls evil, evil. And he deals with it. We should be thankful for that. Buddhism says that evil is only imagined. So they have no answer to evil. They don't think it's an actual problem. It's just something that's imagined. Atheism, naturalism says that evil is just the result of natural promises or processes. So they don't have answers on evil. Christian theism deals honestly with evil. It deals honestly. It has an answer for, what, from, for where evil came from, sin against the holy God, and it has an answer for the justice that we all long to see happen to the evil. That's what we're reading about in Judges 9. This story, guys, is preserved for us so that we would be disturbed. Disturbed by the immorality of all of these characters. And why would God want us to see that? So that we would learn that evil has its day. It always does even if it appears to not for a time. Just as Jotham predicted in verse 20 that fire would consume the evil leaders and a beam like for their evil, so the Lord dealt with him. Justice was served. And God wants us to see that so that we would see that our desires for justice to be served for evil to evil are met in the one true God that is revealed to us in the Word of God. But guys, there's another reason why God would want us to see that evil is always answered. Second reason why he would want us to see that is so that we would understand that we are all evil and deserve the same punishment that Abimelech and the others received. Now some of you say, whoa, that's a big claim. But see friends, there's one glaring weak spot in our desire to see justice serve to evil. We fail to see that we don't meet our own standards of goodness. And we also, of course, more importantly, don't meet the standards of a holy God. And here's how I know that. Not only does the Word of God tell us that, that we don't meet those standards, but also I think I can illustrate this by asking you a simple question. Are you perfect? No. Neither am I. Not even close to it. None of us are perfect. But isn't it interesting that there's something inside of us that says that we ought to be? 
Now, maybe you wouldn't put it quite that bluntly, but you would agree that you and I know that we ought not to lie, but we have. You and I know that we should not steal, but we have. You and I know that we should be good to others more than ourselves even, but we don't. You and I know that we should not be lazy, but we are. Romans chapter 3, verse 12 says it so well. This is from the Bible. Romans 3, 12 says, none are good. None. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 17 books of the New Testament, here's how he described himself. He said, the good thing that I want to do, I don't do it. And the thing that I don't want to do, that's the thing I do. And then he concludes, of himself, wretched man that I am. That's the Apostle Paul's conclusion. See, friends, we've all fallen short of the standard that we all know exists and can't seem to get away from. We all know that we fail that. And so, therefore, friends, we deserve the justice of God. But you say, well, yeah, Nathan, I'm not like those dudes. That may be true, but I'm not like a Bimelech. Like, I didn't, I didn't set people to f- on fire. That's true. We haven't done that. But here's the thing. The friend, the, the standard is not Abimelech. And the leaders of Shechem, they are not the standard. The standard, friend, is not the worst person that you can compare yourself to, nor is the standard the best person that you could compare yourself to. Remember, God made you for Himself. The standard is the holiness of God. He is the standard. He is that standard of perfection that we all want to get to, but we can never really realize we've all sinned against a holy God. And as a result, like a beam, like we stand to receive a penalty for that judgment. You then should then be asking the question, well, okay, well, then what's that penalty? I'll take a look at verse 56, 56 and verse 57 again. Note the language there. God returns the evil of Abimelech and the evil men of Shechem. In other words, all that meant there was God gave a punishment that fit the crime. Once again, it's the same thing that we would expect of our own courts in America, right? We want the punishment to fit the crime. And so what is the answer for our rebellion against God? Damnation. An eternity apart from God. And hell. That's what we deserve. That's what I deserve. It's what we all deserve. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is Jesus Christ speaking in Matthew thirteen forty-one to forty-two. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Harsh penalty, isn't it? But is it just? Does the punishment fit the crime? If it is true that we have all sinned, not once, not twice, innumerable times against an infinitely holy God, then would it not be just of God to have a penalty of eternity in hell since we offended an eternally holy God? Just after those well-known words of Jesus in John 3.16, we'll read those in a moment, Jesus says in the second half of John 3.36, right after that, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, friends, we all want justice. The question is, do we want God to be just with us? If He was, 
we would all be consumed as Abimelech was. Friends, as I said earlier, the book of Judges, it's a hard read, but it is a kind gift from God. Because it shows us what happens to a people that reject God as king and Lord only to take themselves up as king and Lord. Just fitting in God whenever it's convenient. And guys, week after week, we've been seeing that through the book of Judges. Or maybe to say it a different way, Judges explains the chaos of 2018. It explains the increasing confusion and carnage around the world. These disorienting times, hopefully you'll see from a biblical worldview, these disorienting times are not new. They've been going on for centuries. They are the result of a world in rebellion, of a world that wants justice insofar as it makes us king or queen of our own domains. A world that wants justice, but it doesn't want holiness. A world that wants peace, but it doesn't want the God of peace. Not on his terms, anyway. A world that wants to do what is right in their own eyes and not submit themselves to the good God who made us for himself. Guys, the supremacy of self always fails. It always fails. And eventually, our sins, like Abimelech, will find us out. Evil always loses in the end, even if it appears to win for a time. And so, since we stand under the judgment of God for our sin against Him, for our rebellion against His holiness, and since the penalty for that rebellion is eternal pain and suffering, I would hope that we would all be crying out for one thing right now. I would hope that we would all, that since the penalty for that rebellion is eternal pain and suffering, I would hope that all of us would be standing before the judge, as it were, in that court, knowing we're guilty, knowing the penalty is about to be leveled upon us, knowing that we deserve that penalty, and at this point we should all be going, but grace, give me grace, please, please give me grace, pardon, forgive me. We need pardon for our sins. As much as we want justice in the world, we need to want grace from God all the more. Otherwise, justice, the justice that we long for, will fall upon our heads. And guys, this is where the good news of the gospel breaks in. We won't appreciate the good news. The gospel is news. It's not advice. It's news. And the good news of the gospel will not be good until you understand the extreme implications of the bad news. And that's what we've been doing The reality is, friends, if you want to know where you're at in the story, you're Abimelech. I'm Abimelech. I'm those false leaders, those bad leaders. We're the wicked leaders of them. We stand to receive the same penalty that they receive. But, but, what if I told you that at the last second before Abimelech died, or those leaders died, what if I told you an innocent man stepped in and he said, of Abimelech, of those leaders. What if that man said they deserve punishment? They deserve evil. Or they deserve a penalty for that evil that they have done. What if he stepped in at that moment and in order to show them the love of God, he stepped in in all of his innocence and he then consumed the fire himself in place of them, satisfying that penalty so that they would then know the love of God. That's Jesus Christ. That's what he did. That's the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the beautiful news that Christians celebrate. This is why this day and all days are such happy days for us. We can embrace the darkness and the difficulty because we know that Christ showed us grace. This is the ministry of Christ. It says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? 
by becoming a curse for us that believe. How did Jesus use his power? All these other people, the second they get power, they abuse it and they're terrible to people. But Christ takes his power from on high. All authority is his in heaven and on earth. And what does he do with his power? He loves others with it for the good of others. He takes their penalty so that they would know true life and love. This is the ministry of Christ. Christ became fully God, fully man, and lived an innocent, holy life. All of his power, he lived rightly. He loved God perfectly. He loved his neighbor perfectly. He never did wrong, ever. And so therefore, his sacrifice on the cross was then sufficient to pay for sinners that believe. It's a, pen, it's a payment that's sufficient to take that penalty, like a Bimelech penalty. He's able to take it and pay that payment. And then he's placed in the grave. And this is why we rejoice. How do we know? How can we be sure that the penalty for sin, grace, pardon, forgiveness for those that believe on him, how can we be sure that that payment was paid? Resurrection. The resurrection from the dead shows us the check cleared. There is hope for people like me, messed up people like me, and hope for you. That you can have life. That that penalty, that justice that is deserved to fall upon you, it came upon Him. God did this all by His love for His glory. It reveals that the penalty for sin was paid. This is why Jesus came. John 3.17, right after 16. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. How? Through Him. Not through us. Listen, folks. You can't do enough good religious deeds to be made right with God, to satisfy that justice that's supposed to come upon you. You can't do enough good things. You can't take the Lord's Supper enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You're going, Nathan, not exactly a good way to motivate me to come back here next week. But listen, it's true. I don't, it's true. I want you to be motivated. God wants you to be motivated by the love of God in Christ Jesus, by his grace. We as Christians, we gather here, we, we eat, we drink, we love each other. We spread the gospel because we're so amazed at God's grace to sinners like me. We're motivated by love, not by works to try to earn my way towards that love. God first loved us, the Bible says. Grace is amazing. We are a beam like we are too far gone. No amount of religion can save us. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him, which, by the way, that doesn't mean that just you sort of intellectually assent that he was real. No, whoever trusts him, that's what the word means, trusts him and follows him to them. He grants eternal life. Because he paid the price that we could not pay, and he gave us the one thing that we all needed, grace, forgiveness for the justice of our sins. God was just in Christ Jesus. And so here's what we find, friends. The God of justice is also the God of love. And how does he satisfy both in the midst of a rebellious world? Jesus Christ. By his life, death, resurrection, he can be both just to evil and the justifier to the one who has committed evil by trusting in Christ. It is only by this grace that we can come to be in his good graces. It is only by this grace that we can escape the penalty and listen to these words, be freed to now live a holy life. Not to try to do holy stuff to earn it, no, responding to his love to us the ways that the Israelites should have done, but they didn't. Responding to his love. And so because God is both just to evil and the justifier to those who believe, he can promise a world, friends, of no pain. 
of no suffering. And guess what? No evil. No more evil leaders. No more abuse of power. As his example, as exemplified in Christ, who used his power for good, for the good of others. And so heaven is what we wait for. Resurrection of Jesus Christ is called the first fruits. It shows us the way the world should be and one day will be. And so if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, alone, if you've been trusting in your religious deeds, if you've been trusting taking the Lord's Supper, reading your Bible, being a good person, then listen, repent of your attempts to earn God's righteousness and trust Jesus today. He will be the one to satisfy the penalty that should fall upon you. Repent and follow Jesus. And for you, beloved, that has been trusting in Christ and he is your only hope, you have been uh, looking to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. You see yourself in Abimelech. You know these things are deserved by you. And you're trusting in Christ on the cross and in the resurrection to be your payment. Listen, rejoice. Rejoice. In just a moment, come and eat and drink in thanksgiving and knowing a day is going to come when we don't have to deal with this rebellion anymore. And we will get to do what we heard. I love, by the way, Friday night, today, I think one of my favorite things I'm looking forward to heaven is just hearing the saints sing to Christ. I love listening to you sing. Not of your glory, but of his glory. We're going to get to do that all the time, and it's going to be awesome. And guess what we're going to sing about? Revelation 5, 9, 7, 9. Go look at it. We're going to be singing to a bloody lamb. We're not going to be saying, look at me. I was good enough to sort of work my way up here. No. We'll be singing to the greatness of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, our only hope to satisfy the penalty for our evil. And though it may not appear like, guys, in 2018, that the evil is being accounted for, just as it was in Abimelech, evil will not have the last word. Christ appeared to be losing on the cross and never was he winning than he was at the cross. Rejoice. Hope is found in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I personally even confess that apart from Christ, I'm an evil, wicked man. And whatever good that is in me is only by the grace of your Son. Lord, even I I pray as Restoration Church, the body that is Restoration Church, we confess that we are a collection of deeply flawed people. But we are gloriously saved in Christ Jesus. He is our hope. He is our identity. We trust in Him. And I pray for those that may not be trusting in Christ May they come to see their need for grace. And may they long for Jesus and follow him all of their days. Thank you, God, for such difficult stories like Abimelech and these leaders. So as to show us the penalty for evil. And thank you that it's satisfied in Christ. And one day we'll be satisfied completely when Christ returns. We pray in his name. Amen.